You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We're in the middle of a sermon series called uh, Ship Shape. We started it last week, so you are on the front end of this seven-week series. As always, there are questions and answers at the end. If you send me a text, we'll take time to answer those. Um, it can be anonymous if I don't have your contact information. If I do have your contact information, I'll know exactly who it's from. So just know that. There's the Wi-Fi password if you need it. Love, Thermalito. As I said, Ship Shape. We're talking about the ships of our life, getting those in uh, working order, um, getting those in steady order, making them so that we are living our life in an airtight way so that the water doesn't get in. We are looking at the ships, focusing on the ships of our life. The ships we're looking at are discipleship we did last week, hardship, worship, leadership, relationships, stewardship, and workmanship. The quote we talked about earlier was that all the water in the ocean cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside, and nor can all the troubles in the world harm us unless it gets within us. And so we're just making sure that we're airtight, making sure that the water does not get in by focusing on these different ships of our life. Today, uh, I'm pulling an audible. We were going to talk about worship. We're going to do worship next week or March 10th. I have not decided yet. (laughs) Be on your toes. Um, We are talking about today, though, we're talking about hardship. There has been some things happening in the last week or two that have made for a really hard week for some of us. And it just felt like a lot. And so I just wanted to, for my own soul, talk about hardship. Talk about uh, how we face hardship. Because how we face hardship, inevitably, as it comes, inevitably makes or breaks us. How we deal with the hardships of life uh, can have the ability to get us off track. To take us places that we don't want to go. We're going to do this through the story of Job. Job is 42 chapters. You're going to get the whole story. So just bust it. We got three hours. We'll be here. Get your Bibles out verse by verse. But before we start talking about Job, I need to let you know the context of Job. And I'm talking about the whole book, 42 chapters. The context of Job is that it sits within this part of the Bible called wisdom literature tries to teach us how to be wise and how to live the ways of God and what happens to us when we live wisely, righteously, and in the ways of God. And the first book to come out, maybe the earliest, is the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs says, the world is ordered rightly and justly because God is righteous and just, and everybody who lives a moral and upright life will live well. Everything will go well for them. And if you are wicked and you do not live righteously and just, you will be punished and cursed. And these laws are evident in our everyday life, and it is international. It it escapes the bounds of Israel. It is evident from creation. This is what the book of Proverbs tells us, that God is just and righteous. The world that God made is just and righteous, and those who live just and righteous lives will be rewarded well, and their life will be good. And then a book 
uh, oh, I said all this. Why do I say all the stuff I have? God is righteous and just. The world is run wisely. Those who live righteously and justly are rewarded. You're getting triple time. And those who are wicked will be punished. Ecclesiastes comes along in this wisdom literature and says, well, really? Uh, the world isn't always fair. Uh, people don't always get what they deserve. And the world can be unpredictable, like smoke is one of the metaphors he uses. And the underlying question is, is maybe God isn't just. Maybe. We don't, I mean, based on how the world is, we don't know. And I think this context for Job, before we even get into a moment of Job, uh, this tells us the bad news. You know I start with bad news because I think we need to hear the bad news before we can fully accept the good news. And the bad news is that uh, we can have unrealistic expectations about how the world should work. And when those are dashed, we can oftentimes throw God out with the bathwater. That if we have this overly optimistic, rosy picture that everything should be good, I started following Jesus, everything should be good. And, and, and Jesus tells a parable about the way that God spreads the gospel. He throws the seed everywhere generously, but sometimes our hearts aren't able to receive it. And there's, there's uh, deceitfulness of the world and there's anxieties and, and there's even spiritual enemies that come and try to steal the world, uh, the word out of our heart. And when we start following Jesus, sometimes we come under attack even more so than we've ever been. And sometimes it just messes with the expectations that we have about the world and about God. And it gets too much and these expectations get overrun and they get dashed and we throw the whole thing away because it didn't work out quite like we expected. It wasn't what we thought it should be. Why would God allow this, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Where are you, God? And ultimately, why are you bafflingly silent in the middle of pain and hardship? Pain and hardship. One uh, phrase that I had a professor tell me when I was at seminary um, that has always stuck with me because I'm an optimistic person by nature. I'm the one that's like, you do the right thing, right thing happens to you. Like I just, ro a rosy view of the world, just walking through life, I feel great, right? But there was a phrase that a, a professor said that I knew was true. But I just uh, always don't have the courage to touch it or look at it. He says, I don't debate with atheists anymore. Uh, he goes, anybody who follows Jesus deeply can out-atheist any atheist. Because there are times when you've said that prayer and had silence. There are just ways in which you know and cry out, where are you? What's happening? And why are you so silent in the midst of this? Atheists, they don't they, they, it's all ideas for them. For us, there are just times when it's like, where is God? Why are you quiet? And that can be so hard, so hard and so true. Some of us may be going through things like that now. Some of us have gone through things like that. Some of us absolutely will go through things like that. Let me dash all your expectations right away. This is part of our journey. It is part of our faith. The good news from the book of Job is that Job, at least God at the end of Job, wants to give us some direction, some guidance, some wisdom. But I also want to let you know 
no answers. You get no solutions at the end of the book of Job. But you may get some wisdom, and that might be good enough. Here's the story of Job. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to throw some spots up there, and I'm going to try to tell the story. Then we'll get to some scripture at the end when God shows up. 42 chapters. It opens up right away, verses 1 through 5. It tells you how great Job is. He's blameless. He's upright. No one like him in the earth. He's an honest person, absolute integrity, feared God, he avoided evil. He's got a ton of stuff. I mean, he is living the good life. Everything is sweet. And then the, the scene immediately turns in chapter and verse six to, to the heavenly realm. And uh, all the, uh, the angelic beings, the divine beings came and they present themselves and the adversary comes in, in the Hebrew. It's the Satan or we would say Satan, present, maybe the personified face of evil that we know that name to be, or maybe just a title of someone who maybe plays the devil's advocate in this situation. Where did you come from? I was roaming the earth. Have you thought about my servant Job? Surely there is no one like him on earth, a man who is honest, who has absolute integrity, and who reveres God and avoids evil. And the Satan says, the adversary says, um, does he revere you for nothing? Haven't you fenced him in his house? All he has blessed the work of his hands. He has possessions extend throughout the earth. But stretch out your hand and strike all he has. He will certainly curse you to your face. The question being asked is, isn't he just gaming the system? Isn't he just playing the rules that everyone knows that if you live a, a morally upright life, then you will have everything you've ever need plus? He's, just, he's not actually worshiping you. He's just doing this to get the stuff. Sometimes I feel like I, I know people like that. I, and I'm not, I'm not even going to think about naming names. No one in this room, you guys are saints, but sometimes I feel like I know Christians that are like, no, I'm, I'm, it's going to be good. I mean, I'm, I'm going to get blessed. I'm going to bless God to get, it's about the blessing. And I'm like, I don't think it works like that, but maybe like, I don't know, maybe the people closest to God ever were the apostles and they all died, right? Like, except John, who was just banished for life. Like, you know, like, um, the Lord said to the Satan, he's within your power. Stretch out your hand. Take all his stuff away. This actually happens twice. There's two scenes here. One is take his stuff away. And then the Satan comes back and says, <laughs> well, I mean, he still has his health. Like all his family died and all his crops are killed and all his animals are gone and his wealth is completely removed from him. But I mean, he's still healthy. And God says, uh, his health is within your power. Feel free to strike him again. You just cannot kill him. <laughs> Which I think kind of defeats the purpose of the experiment, right? Like, he's not worshiping you now, is he? Yeah, he's dead, right? Like, so the adversary left the Lord's present. Job loses everything, tears his clothes, falls to the ground. He worships God. Naked I've come from my mother's womb, and naked will I return. The Lord has blessed uh, the Lord. What he has given, he has taken away. Uh, in all this, Job didn't sin or blame God. This is that part where he says, hey, what about his health? 
ultimately soars come from soul to the top of the soles of his feet to the top of his head. He sits down in a dust pile, the ashes uh, from where the fires get dumped, and his wife comes to him and says, are you still clinging to your integrity? Curse God and die already. And Job says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Will we receive good from God, but not also receive the bad? And all this, Job didn't sin with his lips. He passes the test. He loses everything, including his health. Talk about hardship. We even still have sayings like that, right? Like even at Thanksgiving, like, well, at least we have our health, right? Job, nothing. He's literally dirt poor and his health is in poor shape. And yet he still doesn't curse God. He doesn't sin with his lips. That's just like the first two chapters. That's it. That's where we are. And then it says that he has three friends. And right away, his friends do the right thing. I mean, this all takes place in this land called Uz, a U-Z. Um, we don't even think this is, I mean, this is not Israel. Job's probably not an Israelite. These friends all, they tell you, they're not Israelites. Eliphaz from Taman, Bildad from Shua, Zophar from, where is he from? Naama. They're not Israelites, but they come and they represent the, the, the best wisdom of the world about how to approach these spiritual things. But right away, they just do the best thing. And you think they're going to be good friends. You're so excited. They agreed to come and console and comfort their friend. And when they looked up from it, they didn't recognize him. Full of sores, shaved head, sitting in the dust. They wept loudly. Each one of them tore their garment, scattered dust above their head. They sat with Job on the ground for one week in total silence. That is a good friend. If they just would have done that. Five chapters. We're done with this whole book. In, in in the Jewish context, there's a practice called sitting shiva. That is when someone is in mourning. You just come and you sit on the floor. You cannot sit higher than them. That's one of the rules. And you just sit in total silence. And you only speak if they mourners speak to you. It's a wonderful practice. I wish we did things like this. Um, but good friends. And then for 25 chapters... They tell Job that he is suffering because he sinned. Even though the first two, three chapters, he did not sin. He is righteous and blame. God has very clearly said, Job is upright, truthful, not, not a sinner. And they said, but the world is righteous and just because the one who created is righteous and just. And everyone who lives by God's ways will be blessed. You are a total Sinner, all of this is absolutely your fault. You must have done something. God is cursing you. He's punishing you because God only punishes the wicked. And this surely is divine punishment. This is what Eliphaz says, like right away. What innocent person has ever perished? When have those who do the right thing been destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow sin and sow trouble will harvest. It's your fault, Job. We know it's not. He passed the test. 25 chapters of this. So um, skim it. You know, I'm just kidding. 25 chapters of this. No, read it deeply. There's rich things there. 25 chapters. And Job says, he, 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 he does a couple things. One, he demands that he's innocent. Now look at me. Would I lie to your face? 
turn. Don't be faithless. Turn now. I am righteous. Is there wrong on my tongue? Or can my mouth not recognize disaster? I'm innocent. I don't know what's going on. And then uh, he's on an emotional roller coaster. So at times he stands up and he's mad at God. He's angry at God. He, he calls out to God. He asks God. He, he, he even says a few times that maybe God isn't just. He, he demands that God show up and talk to him like a man. He accuses God of being unjust. I mean, there is some near blasphemy on his mouth. But in his emotional state, he doesn't know what's going on. He, he is not a sinner, and yet he is reaping all the, the rewards of the sinners, and his friends have come to accuse him for a long time. And then, a random fourth friend shows up, named Elihu. He has a Jewish name. It means God sees. And, 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 his, and he talks for six chapters. So get ready, but that's what he does. At 32, he talks for six chapters. And, and he wants to bring a little more nuance, but he essentially says the same things as his other three friends. He, he says, God is just and the world is run fairly, but suffering may be God's way of helping us to avoid sin and maybe build some character. So he's trying to like, hey, 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 let's not blame the victim here. Maybe God's just forewarning him. Or maybe just trying to toughen him up, toughen him up a little bit. And then God speaks. God shows up in the midst of that in a whirlwind. And you're ready for him after 25 chapters of friends having arguments back and forth about why suffering happens, representing the best wisdom of the world at the time. You're thinking God is going to show up and make his case. God is going to show up and speak into the arguments. And God does not show up. God does not give any answer. In fact, God speaks for about three chapters and the entirety of God's case is that God don't need to make a case to anybody. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this darkening counsel with words lacking knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man. The original language is gird your loins, get ready to fight or run, right? Pull your robe up because you're running or fighting. Pick one. I will interrogate you, God says to Job, and you will respond to me. The establishing of order. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? It is so beautiful. I'm just going to read some more. On what were its footings sunk? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang in unison and all the divine beings shouted? Who enclosed the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and the dense clouds its wrap, when I imposed my limit for it and I said to the sea, you may come this far, but no further. Here your proud waves stop. Three chapters of some of those beautiful creation-oriented poetry you've ever heard. But you see, there's no solutions in sight. 
And then God goes on to talk about the lion and the raven and how God is just so proud of God's creation, the strength and the smarts of the raven and the mountain goat who's so free and the wild donkey who is also free and the wild ox who cannot be tamed because of his strength and the ostrich who is so fast, maybe a little dumb, God says, leaves his eggs, leaves her eggs just sitting in the dirt to be stepped on. But when she runs, she brings God so much delight and laughs at the horse and rider. But the horse, God says, does not fear and will ride into battle unafraid. The hawk, the eagle, the vulture, they, the cleanup crew, they, they, they have incredible vision, God says. And he ends this whole thing talking about this thing called the behemoth and the Leviathan. The behemoth and the Leviathan. This is William Blake. He, he, he was an artist in the 1700s in England, and he painted a picture of God pointing to the behemoth and to the Leviathan. And some scholars think it's maybe modeled after the hippo and a crocodile, but some scholars think that he, they're talking about these ancient Near East mythical monsters that were in the area. I'll let you decide. It's not my job to make up your mind for you. Uh, there's freedom. But either way, God points to these monsters. And he's so proud of them. And they are wild and dangerous. Look what he says. This is God. Look at the behemoth who I made along with you. He eats grass like cattle. Look, his strength is in his thighs. His, his power in stomach muscles can he be uh, seized by his eyes? Can anyone pierce his nose by hooks? A whole chapter on the Leviathan. Can you draw out the Leviathan with a hook? None on earth can compare to him. He is made to be without fear. He looks on all the proud, and he is king over all the proud beasts. The end. That's God's answer to pain and suffering in the world. This book of Job has been read for thousands of years as how we approach the issues of hardship. And so I guess the question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with this arguing about righteousness in a right and just world? And what do we do with God's definitive word that is not very definitive at all? How does this help us uh, approach hardship in our life? You know me, I like to preach head, heart, hands. Uh, I think there's something that God wants us to know. And, and as that ruminates, it, if we allow it, it can come into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and let us experience something. There's something that God wants us to experience in ourselves and in our lives. And then ultimately, it, it goes out into our hands. There's something for us to do with this. And I think, and maybe it's just me, maybe this is what God's talking to me about. But one of the lessons that God is trying to share with us over those three chapters of talking about how the world is, he wants to tell us. The creation is good, and it's ordered, and it's beautiful, but it's not perfect, it's wild, and it's dangerous. Creation is good, ordered, and beautiful, but it is not perfect. It is wild, and it is dangerous, and some of that is by design. There's behemoth and leviathan that God made and is so proud of, and they're strong, and they do not care at all about humans, and if you get near them, you will surely be devoured, 
And that's partly by design, but also there's a ways in which we have messed up the world. And at this stage of creation, it is not designed to prevent suffering. There's a wildness to it and a dangerousness to it. And some of that is by design and some of that is because we broke the thing. But creation is good, ordered, and beautiful. That's, so in that argument, is the world good? Yeah. Is it ordered? Yeah. But God wants to let us know it's not perfect, it's wild, and it's dangerous. And this is where I'm getting. Can you draw out the Leviathan? He looks over all the proud. I said this. At this stage, creation is not designed to prevent suffering, but it is still ordered in ways that are above our ability to understand. This is the, one of the lessons that he's trying to convince Job of. Yes, I am overseeing it. Yes, Yes, it is just in the long run, right? Martin Luther King says, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. In the long run, justice will have its day. But it is complex. It is complex. And one of the ways we know it's complex is because when we see bad things happen, we go, God should do something about that. And when we do bad things, we're like, I need some grace. Could you give me some more time? No one ever thinks the world should be super just for them, right? Like, uh, can I get let off the hook this time? We want God to wipe out the evil, but we're not always looking at the evil that is lurks within us. And so God says it's difficult. It's complex. It's, it's beyond our understanding. I am ordering the world, and it does bend towards justice, but it is not immediate. It doesn't happen swiftly, and you should be very grateful for that. It reminds me of the scene from Narnia. Do you know the scene? The children are sitting with beavers. It's a mythical. If you've never seen it, it sounds already uh, fantastical, and that's because it is. Uh, and the beavers are telling them about this land called Narnia, and he says, Aslan is on the move, and they never heard of this. Aslan is this lion character who is the Jesus figure for the land. He had been absent for a while, and now he is here. Here is the thing. Uh, one of the little girls says, is he a man? Asked Lucy, Aslan, uh, Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not, I tell you. He is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who could appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. There is no guarantee of safety with this God and this creation. And if our expectation is that if we follow God, things are going to be fine, it is going to be a hard time for us when hardship comes. That has never been the guarantee when we deal with this God who creates behemoths and Leviathan. This is Stanley Hauerwas. I enjoy some of his writing. He's a, a, a Duke University professor, but he's from Texas. So he's got a good Southern accent. Uh, really folksy. Um, anyways, he's got some wild and radical theology, but some of the stuff I like. It's hard to remember that Jesus did not come to make us safe. 
but rather to make us disciples, playing off last week, citizens of God's new age, a kingdom of surprise. The hard truth of Job and of hardship is that safety is not guaranteed. And when we let go of our expectation of safety, we're open to experience God's gladness and goodness and pride and connection. What does God want us to feel or experience? This heart mode. What's going on in this? Two things, because I could not pick. One, God is asking us to trust God's goodness and wisdom, even in the midst of some of this hardship, especially in the midst of hardship. Even when things don't seem to make sense, he wants to tell us that the world is ordered, but it's also wild, And but we can trust God. We can trust God. This is one of the things that I've come to learn is that the Bible is not trying to convince us that God exists. That's mostly the conversations we think through. The Bible is trying to convince us that God is good and worthy of our faith and trust. And this is one of the lessons of Job. We could trust God. The world is ordered, even in its wildness. And also, God wants us to experience God's own presence. Here's where I'm getting that from. Remember the question, is God good and just, and is the world ordered to that justice? And God's answer is yes, and it's far more complicated than we could fathom, and it's good Good and ordered doesn't, doesn't mean not, wow, there's a lot of knots in that, does not mean not wild and dangerous. Yes, it's good and ordered. Yes, God is righteous and just. Yes, God has created a world that is... A, relatively just in the long run, but it's more complicated than we could fathom. And it doesn't mean that there won't be danger and wildness. And I wish Job's questions about suffering were answered. I think all of us do. That Job's questions had gotten a solution from God in the midst of his hardship. But Job is surprisingly satisfied and humbled after his encounter with God. And I think here's why. Here's here's a passage, chapter 42, the last chapter. Job says to God, I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand. Wonders beyond my comprehension. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Do you see the difference? I have heard about you. But now I've seen you. The difference between his questions about hardship And now his humility comes in seeing God, being in the presence of God, hearing from God. It reminds me of this. I hope I get to talk about my own children here. But I'm an excitable person. And um, when my first child was uh, being born, we learned it like six weeks, right? And so I did the math and we had the due date. And I knew that babies could come early. And so like a month before the due date, I was like, any second. For 30 days, I lived on the edge of my seat, bags packed. I could not wait, but also totally afraid. Never had kids before. I have no idea what's going to happen. All these questions running through my mind. Is he going to be allergic to my detergent? Is he going to be allergic to my cat Betsy? Is he going to be allergic to the pillows, the, the fabric of the pillow? I'm just, I'm excited. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I don't know what's going to happen. I've, ne- I've never been around babies. My brother is two years younger than me. And so I don't remember any of that. Thank goodness. Right? So I had almost zero training and a thousand percent excitement. 
and he was eight days late. So for five weeks, any second, and, and this is not part of the story, but it is. Um, we we didn't know the, the sex of our babies, and um, Aaron was friends with all the sonographers, and so one of the one of the sonographers gave us a gift with the because she knew the sex of the baby with the clothes type of the baby. And all I had to do was open this gift to see if we're having a boy or a girl. Every day, I just stared at it. It's like the marshmallow test for dads. I was like, do I, maybe if I just touch it, maybe I'll hear. I didn't, but uh, it was agony. The waiting, the anxiety, the not knowing, the, the, the lateness. Um, it was a lot. And then a baby comes. These are all three of my babies. This is me and Titus, and this is me, Titus, and Junia, and that's me and Theo. He came out big. I don't. It's just a big baby. <laughs> There's a difference in the presence of a baby than in the expectation and the wonder and the worry and the anxiety. I had heard about babies, but now I had seen one with my own eyes. Right. And there's a humility and a responsibility. I mean, the, the questions change immediately from about, is he going to be allergic to my pillow fabric, right? To like, uh, well, a million more questions. They just let me walk out with this thing. I was no book. They're like, we just want to check to see if your car seat is secure. I'm like, well, I got to take him out of that in about three minutes. I need some more wisdom. I had heard about babies, but the presence of babies makes it different. Calms the anxiety in some ways. It causes me to ask all kinds of different questions. There is a way in which the question about our hardships and pain melt away in the presence of God. And that is one of the takeaways from Job. And a million more verses I could just read on and on about what Jesus tells us. But there's just a way in which God's presence melts away the questions about hardship and pain. It doesn't make always the pain go away. It doesn't make the hardships go away. But the anxiety that comes with it, the frustration, the whys of it become diminished in the presence of God. Amen? What does God want us to do? What does God want us to do? God wants us to bring us our full, honest, wrestling selves, which is my probably my number one takeaway from Job. Here's where I'm getting that from in the text. So God says all the things that God wants to say to Job. Job responds in humility. And then God speaks to the three friends that sat with Job, mostly to Eliphaz. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, he said to Eliphaz from Taman, I am angry at you and your two friends because you haven't spoken about me correctly. All they were saying was that God is righteous and just and the world that God created is righteous and just and that anyone who suffers must be a sinner because the righteous and just are rewarded. And God says, that's not right. That's not how the world works. But Job, my servant, did speak correctly. 
Job, my servant, will now pray for you and act, and I will act favorably towards you, not making you fools of you because you didn't speak correctly twice, but twice Job, my servant, did. And, and I don't take that to mean that everything Job said is gospel truth because Job said some very hasty things in his, ro- his roller coaster of emotions. But what I do take that to mean is that God is honored when Job brought his full self to God, even in his wrestling. Job said some hasty... I always say the things that are on the next slide. Job said some hasty things that weren't always true about God, but he always was truthful with God. And God honors that. And God welcomes that. And God says that that's correct. That the struggle is real. And that we can really bring our struggle to God. And sometimes bringing ourselves and our mess and our pain and our hardship is enough, is what God is asking of us. And God invites us to bring our whole selves, all our pain, all our hardship, all our doubt. And God sees our wrestling and calls it good. And calls it good. That's maybe my number one takeaway. That God isn't asking us to come all churched up. God isn't asking us to, to try to stuff all of our theology and of God and suffering into neat little boxes that try to put little bows on it and wrap it all up so that we can try to make God look better than God is. God says that it's hard. And it's wild and it's dangerous. And part of that's our fault and part of that's by design. Part of that God's proud of. But we can be honest about that and we can come to God with all of that. Part of the reason I'm preaching on this is because there is a dear one from our church who is in the hospital and she's wrestling for her life. She was at church Sunday and uh, it's Alice. She sits right here. And the next day, her husband found her unconscious and uh, she has apparently gone into all kinds of organ failure and we've been trying to figure out what's going to happen and things looked really bleak for a long time and there are signs of hope. She has woken up for an hour. Um, they are doing all kinds of life-saving measures, but um, it, it, it can go either way. And it's just been really hard. She was one of the original table folks. She lived in the apartment across the street with me, came to the Hofbrau. There were Sundays when I didn't know if the table was going to make it. And she believed for me, right? She's been here. And so we've been through a journey with that. And there are other health journeys going on that have confidences about them. This is not the only one, but this is a big one that's on my mind. And so, uh, and, and what I'm learning about as I'm reading Job is that it's okay for me to bring my full self to this. I can be honest with God and be frustrated and upset and not understand and have questions. Uh, And God welcomes that. God welcomes even the pastor's frustrations and hardships in the midst of that. He's not asking us to Eliphaz it out and just try to patch things up with Band-Aid solutions and suggestions, but bring the full gamut of ourselves. And that is what God calls good That is what qualifies Job to get to pray for those people with tidy theologies. Ultimately, uh, what I feel like God is saying to me as I try to bring my full self is that we might not get closure, but we may get something better. Closeness. Connection. Jesus tells us something very similar. In this world, you will have troubles, but I have overcome the world. And he gives us his peace. And peace is so much better, in my mind, in the face of troubles, 
and oftentimes even lack of troubles. Amen. Lack, are there any questions before I wrap this up? I have a doctor's appointment tomorrow morning. I cannot do lunch. Let's do it next week. You got it. Sign me up for that. So if Satan is not all-powerful, how does uh, he have the power to do all that stuff to Job? Great question, and the assumption is correct. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not omniscient or omnipotent or those things that we talk about with God. Satan is a finite being. Satan uh, is another being like the angels. So Satan isn't everywhere all the time. There's no boogeyman hiding behind the rocks waiting to jump out and get you all the time. Satan is a finite, limited being. The reason uh, in this situation that Satan has the power to do that, great question, is because we see in the text very clearly God gives him the power to do that. He would say, his life is in your hands. Do what you want. God, in this experiment, gives Satan the ability to do the thing that he did. And I have to tell you, the setup for Job is the hardest part for me of this whole story. So if you have lots of questions about that whole scene about the heavenly throne and and God and Satan working together to figure out what's going on with Job, I have lots of questions too. Um, it's a it's a it's a difficult scene to stomach in that sense that it feels like God is allowing things to happen that I would not normally ascribe to God if they were happening to you. If you came to me and you were like, "Hey, all my cattle just died from a fire that came out of the sky," I'd be like. UFOs? I would not blame God. I would not call you a sinner and blame God for your situation. Uh, that scene is hard. Last minute questions. Let me wrap this up. What does God want us to know? Creation is good and it is ordered and it is beautiful. And that's one of the uh, the, the things that we could take solace in in creation. That it does bend towards justice. Justice is coming. One of the things that has been uh, consoling to me is that Delayed justice is still justice. If someone steals your car and you get it back 10 years later, that justice is still served. And so it might not be immediate, thank God. I'm so glad that God does not deal out justice immediately. But it will happen. But also creation is not perfect. And at this stage, it is not designed to prevent suffering. And so we have no guarantee of safety it is wild and dangerous. What does God want us to feel? First, trust God's goodness and wisdom, even in the midst of that first truth. Because God's presence might make the most sense of everything that's going on beyond any solution or answers that we can get. As Job says, I've heard about you, but now I've seen you. And that made all the difference in the world. And lastly, what does God want us to do in the midst of hardship? Don't ignore it. Don't minimize it. That isn't what God is asking anyone to do. God invites us to bring our full, honest, and wrestling selves. And so that's my spiritual practice for you today. My last slide, I will pray after this. What hardships maybe are you minimizing right now that maybe you can bring to Jesus this week? Is there something going on in your life that you're trying to minimize, not touch, not look at? Uh, maybe you're trying to eliphaz that. And maybe we need to, I'm going to verb it. I'm going to make that a verb. Maybe we just need to look at it a little bit and bring it before Jesus. Would you pray with me? Thank you again, Father, for this time, for this story that has been read for thousands of years about what we all go through at some point in our life. 
these hardships, these difficulties. It doesn't come with a tidy bow, and that is hard for me. Would you help me marinate on the the lessons that are present? That you are good, that your world is good, and there's a certain degree of expectation that we can have. That the wicked will be punished and evil will be purged. And Lord, we pray even now that may it begin with us. May your Holy Spirit be purging the evil and wickedness from our own hearts. That we would be your people that are starting the solution for removing the evil in the world through your power. Lord, even in the midst of hardships that are sure to come, would your presence be thick with us? Would we have no doubt that you are around us, even if we don't hear from you? We pray for the peace of your presence even more than we pray against the hardships of life. And lastly, Lord, would you encourage us, give us the strength of character and the fortitude to bring our full selves, to touch those emotions, to look at it truthfully and bring it to you in all its heartbreaking sadness and frustrating anger. Would you encourage that in us, that we can be honest even with our own selves and especially with you who sees all hearts and knows all things. Would you allow us to just speak the truth that you already know to be true? And may that be healing in our life. Lord, now as we come to a time of communion, would this bread and this juice be spiritual nourishment to our bodies, giving us uh, the nourishment we need to weather the storms and to stay connected to you. Would your Holy Spirit be on these elements and in us so that in this time we may sense and get connected to you and your presence that we may experience the closeness that you promise at this time. And Lord, we finish our prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer. So church, would you pray with me? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us